good morning. And uh, happy 27th anniversary. Yeah, 27. You know, it's kind of amazing how there are certain, you know, points in time in your life that you can remember like they happened yesterday. You know, like uh, your wedding day, the birth of a child, you know, some of those big, big high points. Well, for me, it also includes the weekend of April 9th, 1995, and getting started with a brand new church and uh, with so many question marks, you know, as to uh, the viability, will it be able to be sustained? And, you know, when you're starting a church from scratch without a mother church, you know, that's, uh, uh, it's kind of a gamble. That's, that's what they'll say. And, but yet, uh, through all the high points and some of those, those low points that, that we experienced over the years, uh, the one thing that has been clearly seen is that God has been faithful through it all. And uh, we, we celebrate that, because ultimately that is the very thing that we're celebrating. Well, today, we're going to be focusing our attention on a particular character that is found in the Bible that everyone in here has heard about, and all those that are joining us online as well have heard about. Even if you have not personally ever read a single page in the Bible, you have heard about this particular character. I'm talking about the devil. The devil is referred to as the devil in the Bible some 35 times. He is referred to as Satan 52 times. And then he's referred to by other designations and all, um, um, you know, a number of other lesser times like uh, Lucifer, Beelzebub, Belial, the ancient serpent, father of lies, the tempter, just to name a few. One of the ongoing themes that is found in the Bible is that there is an invisible realm that exists simultaneous to the physical world that we are living our lives in. There is an invisible realm. At various points in time in the Bible, we're given a glimpse, you know, of that invisible realm. One of my favorite passages is found back in the Old Testament in 2 Kings, and it involves the prophet Elisha. And uh, at this particular point in time, there is a foreign army, uh, the Arameans, uh, led by the king of that country that... Uh, They've got a warrant out for Elisha because they believe he's divulging some of their battle secrets and stuff like that. And so in the middle of the night, they have found out where Elisha is at. They have encircled the place. And early in the morning, Elisha's servant wakes up. I'll let you see it for yourself. It says, when the servant of the man of God got up early and went out, he discovered an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. So he asked Elisha, Oh, my master, what are we to do? Elisha said, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. Now, we don't know much about his servant. 
We don't know, um, for example, that he was like a valedictorian in his class or anything like that, but I think he probably knew math well enough that it wasn't adding up to him because he was thinking, there's Elisha and there's me, and then there are thousands and thousands of the bad guys out here. And so naturally, he was unnerved by that. But then you see Elisha in the very next verse, what he does. Verse 17, then Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes. He looked and saw that the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. For just a brief moment, Elisha's servant was able to get a glimpse into the angelic realm to be able to see what was happening and the fact that indeed they did outnumber this invading army, the, the Arameans, and with their ill intentions. The Bible says that the devil is a part of this. He is a part of this invisible realm. Paul warns us of him in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, put on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so Paul was, was telling the church in Ephesus, the devil, we've got to be on our guard because of what he's up to. So what we're going to do today is, is we're going to take some time and we're going to break this down and we're going to look at this from several different angles today. We're going to talk about the devil. Now, for some of you, this will be a review. Some of these principles we're going to touch on are things that you have heard and you have studied before, but it is good to have your memory refreshed. And for others of you in here, this may be the very first time you will have heard some of the things uh, that you're about to hear. And it's found in God's word. So, you know, it is something that God wants to use to equip us fully uh, as we live our lives and as we battle temptation and the likes. But the first thing that I want to do is I want to just kind of take a break from this and step aside for a couple minutes. And I want to talk about something that does not involve the devil. Because um, we're at the very end of our series. We are, have been unfolding a series that has basically taken us through the Bible, discussing the major themes of the Bible. We started it at the beginning of January, and the plan was to end it on Easter Sunday, which is next Sunday. And if any of you have been keeping track, we've covered a lot of different topics over this time. But, you know, as I was preparing for this message, you know, it, it was really being impressed upon me that uh, there's some pretty significant topics we haven't talked about and we just haven't had time to talk about. But I, but I want to just briefly hit three of those right now because I, I don't want them to be ignored. For example, the second coming of Jesus. I mean, there's some 300 passages of Scripture that, that are found in the covers of the Bible that talk about the second coming of Jesus and the fact that he's going to come in an hour that we do not know and he's going to be coming like a thief in the night not that he is a thief but just that unexpectedness of his arrival 
You know, he came his first time, you know, Bethlehem, we know that, the Christmas story that led to the cross, and we're all well acquainted with that. But the Bible clearly talks a lot about the fact that he's coming back again. Another topic that we have not uh, gotten into that the Bible talks about, not quite as frequently as the second coming of Christ, but, but it does bring it up, and that is that this realm, this world is going to be destroyed what we know of as life and what we've been experiencing, you know, around us in this world, it's going to be destroyed. Second Peter chapter 3 says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Okay, there's another reference to the second coming. And then it says, the heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Okay, so there's one of the verses that talks about how Things are going to be destroyed. Life as we know it will not continue indefinitely in this realm. And that includes your house. That thing that you try to keep a coat of paint on and a, a good, decent roof um, on the top so it doesn't leak. You know, that, that thing that you once in a while, if you live in it long enough, you kind of remodel remodel the kitchen or the bathrooms or put new carpet down or something like that, well, there's going to come a time that that thing is going to be destroyed. It's going to completely burn up. That thing that maybe is in the front of your house, that flower garden, some of you have already started doing some work on that, preparing your flower garden. Got news for you. That's going to be destroyed. I mean, I, I use that as justification for why I don't like to plant flowers, you know, because they're all going to burn up in the end. Uh, but, uh, but the fact of the matter is, that's the truth. That's what the Bible teaches. Whatever, wherever that favorite vacation destination spot is, for some of you, maybe it's on a beach. Others of you, maybe it's like in the mountains of Montana or something like that. There's going to come a time that that's going to be destroyed. It's not going to continue to exist. This is one of the things that the Bible teaches. And then a third thing, and all of this falls underneath the heading of the end times, another thing that is approaching is a thing called Judgment Day. And the Bible clearly talks about that. In fact, it talks about it frequently enough. It doesn't always refer to it as Judgment Day or the Day of Judgment. Sometimes you're going to find passages that just refers to it as the day or that day. And that's exactly what it's talking about. The, the Bible numerous uh, times, like in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, the first part of this passage, talks about it, says, just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. It's a reality. It's a part of my future. It's a part of your future. You would have to admit that these are some pretty heavy subjects, right? You know, and so we, we haven't devoted a message to those, but uh, uh, they certainly are worthy of messages. And so that's why these are topics that we talk about on occasion, because they're in the Scripture and God wants us to be aware of them. And uh, they should impact our lives, because we live in the shadow of that reality, it's going to happen. 
And so, yeah, it should have an impact in influencing our decision-making, how we go about living our life today and tomorrow and so on. But it doesn't have to have the influence of fear on believers. It doesn't have to have that kind of impact in your life that costs you sleep at night as you lay on your bed fretting the coming of Judgment Day, the coming of the Lord, the destruction of the world. That need not be the case. For in fact, the Bible says you can have confidence in regards to any one of those or all of those. Here's a couple passages you can look at closer on your own time. But uh, John, he does a good job of talking about some of the things we can know as believers. And I've underlined the key parts of these statements in regards to what we're talking about. In 1 John 2, John said, We may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. (coughs) So in regards to the second coming of Jesus, we can have confidence. And then look at the next one in chapter 4 of that same book. We will have confidence on the day of judgment. That almost sounds like an oxymoron because how can you combine the word uh, or the concept of confidence with the concept of judgment day? Those two things don't seem to go together at all. It's like oil and water. But the reality of the matter is that because of Jesus Christ, we can have confidence. And, and that's, that's part of what we celebrate, you know, as believers and part of what brings us together on occasions like this and certainly next Sunday as well. All right, so let's get back to what our main topic is today. Let's talk about the devil. It's, it's not uncommon to see people go to one of two extremes when it comes to the subject of the devil. One extreme is to overlook him entirely. People just kind of have this tendency sometimes to blow off the devil. They just think of him as being a cartoonish guy with a pointed tail and a pitchfork, right? Um, The personification of evil, a figment of our imagination, a made-up being, you know, and, and so they just overlook him entirely, and I think that is a mistake. I think there are passages of Scripture like in Jude. Jude is an extremely small Uh, letter in the New Testament. It's only one chapter long, but you see a very intriguing verse in verse 9. It says, but even Michael, one of the mightiest of angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses's body. Now that one verse brings up several questions that I'm not even going to try to tackle because it would just be um, opinions that I'd be sharing because the Bible doesn't really give us insight into what was the deal with Moses' body that Michael the archangel and the devil, you know, were, were kind of going nose to nose over. What, why, what was all that about? Well, we're not given details in regards to that. What I want you to see, though, in this is that Michael the archangel respected the power of the devil, the might of the devil, who he represented. Yeah, it doesn't, when you look at that verse and verses like that or that, that kind of promote that same, some of those same concepts, it doesn't really sound like 
um, the devil is a cartoonish character that we can just poke fun at and, and blow off as being totally insignificant. So I think that's a mistake, that extreme, to overlook him entirely. But yet the other extreme, I think, is a mistake as well, and that is to become preoccupied with him, to live in such a way that little by little he becomes a person's primary focus in life. I don't think that's right. You know, there's a grand total of 120 times that the devil is referred to in the Bible. Okay, that's a pretty good number, right? 120 times you're going to find the devil being referred to in the Bible. But you contrast that with the frequency with which Jesus is referred to just in the New Testament alone, 2,250 times. I mean, that's quite a contrast. 120 compared to 2,250 times. The conclusion that I draw from that is that we need to understand who our enemy is, but not be preoccupied with him. That's part of what I get out of that. I, I look in the book of Acts. The book of Acts records the history of about 30 years from the resurrection of Christ. The next 30 years, the birth of the church and the spread of the church. And in those 30 years, in the record that Luke wrote that's called Acts, there are four references to the devil. So he doesn't leave him out. He doesn't totally ignore him. But it's pretty clear he wasn't preoccupied with him either. See, all of this goes a long way in explaining why in the last 27 years in this church, we have talked about the devil on an occasional Sunday, but we've talked about Jesus every Sunday. Because that's where our focus is. And he is the one who makes the difference in life and in eternity. And we will continue to do that. Now, in the remainder of our time today, what I want to do is I want to talk about some good news and some bad news as it relates to the devil. In fact, I'm going to flip-flop that, and we're going to first talk about the bad news, and then we're going to talk about uh, good news uh, in regards to what the Bible says concerning the devil. All right, here's some bad news. There was war in heaven. If you're going to start, you know, where do you start? When you're talking about the devil, I think this is a good place to begin with what happened in heaven. Because the beginning of the story of the devil, it begins in heaven. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. We're going to reference this chapter several times. Um, it says this, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels, there's another reference to the angel Michael. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. War in heaven. Now, when did this conflict play out in heaven? Well, we know in Genesis chapter 3 that the devil makes an appearance in the Garden of Eden, right? So, it's something that predates the creation of the world. Beyond that, we don't have details. So, it was before the creation of the world, there was this war in heaven. I've got a couple of passages that I can't recall if I put this on your outline. If I didn't, you might want to include it there so you can read it on your own time and study it a little bit more. I do believe that both of these passages are giving us insight into the story of the devil 
and how the devil became the devil, you know, and what his intent, intentions were. I know it talks about uh, people like the king of Tyre and, you know, some of that, but, but you quickly begin to see as you're reading those verses that it's not talking about just simply a human being, even a human being that's sitting on the throne. It's kind of talking about that human being almost like it's a puppet on a string and it's talking about the one who is behind that puppet on a string, the puppet master, the devil himself. And it gives us insight there. For example, in verse 16 of that Ezekiel passage, it refers to the one being spoken of as being a guardian cherub. That is an angel. The king of Tyre was not an angel. Never was an angel. Completely separate created being from an angel. But yet the devil was an angel, a fallen angel. You look in verse 17 and it says there regarding this guardian cherub that his heart became proud. Now we're starting to get some insight into what led to the downfall of the devil from heaven. His pride. In fact, as you read both those passages, what you're going to see is that he was making a play on the throne. He was attempting to usurp the throne of God. So there was this battle that took place. That's the bad news, a battle in heaven. But the good news is he was cast out of heaven. He lost that battle. Again, going back to Revelation chapter 7 where it says there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And so we actually see basically what is developing here is the devil and demons. But it all started with a battle in heaven and they were cast out of heaven. Isaiah, the passage that I referenced earlier in verse 12, this is where the word Lucifer comes into play in the King James and in the New King James Version. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. The name Lucifer uh, references beautiful, beautiful star, beautiful um, morning star. Um, and this is part of where the the teaching that perhaps you've heard that that uh, the the devil originally as an angel was a beautiful angel, but pride took over from there, and it ended up leading to his downfall. Yeah, he is powerful though. Remember Michael the archangel, the Lord rebuke you. He is powerful, but understand something about the devil. He is not all powerful. So don't ever attach to him this idea of omnipotence. That is a word that is descriptive of God. God is all-powerful. The devil is not. Don't ascribe to him uh, the word omniscient, meaning all-knowing. The devil is not all-knowing. God is all-knowing, but the devil isn't. Don't attach to him the word omnipresent. That means able to be in all places at one time, no, 
The devil can only be in one place at any, at any particular point in time. Now, omnipresent is a word that describes God because God is God. God can be everywhere at one time. So, so if in your mind you're thinking of the devil as being kind of a one-to-one match with God, then you're mistaken because that is not what the Bible teaches. Now, due to his pride, he thought he could, he could uh, you know, go toe-to-toe, but, but he obviously was not able to, and so he was cast out of heaven. All right, bad news and good news. Let me give you some more bad news. Paradise was destroyed. Or to say it another way, paradise was lost. There is a reason that the devil is referred to as the destroyer. When you see him in the Garden of Eden, here you have this beautiful place, Adam and Eve, basically living in, existing in paradise, and they've got a special relationship with God. But you can just imagine how that burned the devil. Because the devil had lost all of that when he was cast out of heaven. And so he was all about destroying that. And that's why we read what we read in Genesis chapter 3. But that's not the only place where we get a glimpse, you know, of his destructiveness I mean, just read the first two chapters of the book of Job and you're going to get a good feel for his intention. He wants to wreak havoc in people's lives. And Job, all that ordeal that he went through and everything, the driving force behind all of that was the devil. He was the one that was wanting to cause all that. This is a big part of why Peter refers to the devil in the way that he does in his first letter. He says, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so he uses this this image, this picture of the devil as being like a lion. And I can't help but think back to when I was like a a young teenager and a mutual of Omaha, Wild Kingdom, you know, was on TV regularly. And they would show, you know, these lions or a pack of lions in, in Africa and how they would converge on a stray wildebeest or or a gazelle or something or other. And once they caught it and just started ripping the flesh away from the bones, well, that is what Peter chooses to use as an image to help us to have a better understanding of the devil. He's all about destruction. So there's some bad news there, no doubt. But the good news is paradise will be restored. Yeah, Adam and Eve, they lost the Garden of Eden and all, and largely because of some of that negative influence of the devil there as far as temptation and everything goes. But uh, it's going to be restored. You can look at the final two chapters in the Bible, and you're going to read stuff like this. Revelation 21 says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And so you get a picture here of God being united and being in the very presence of his people. And you can read the surrounding verses and you're going to see it's a beautiful place. In chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, it says the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city 
and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. And so basically what was kind of ripped out of the hands of, of Adam and Eve through the influence of the devil and all, that is going to be restored. And now you're a little further along in understanding what the, what the central theme is of the Bible. Because Genesis 3 is at the very beginning. This is at the very end. And it's all about God restoring what was lost, what was destroyed. Well, the devil played a hand in all of that, in that destruction. But God's going to have the final word. And this is what Jesus is coming and all was all about. Satan couldn't have it. So he didn't want anyone else to have it. But when it all shakes out in the end, God's people are going to be experiencing something really special when it's all restored. But there's still some more bad news. The devil, he is the God of this age. You notice I use the small g on the word God. That is intentional for some of the reasons I said earlier. As a matter of fact, this is a statement, a, a, a phrase that is used to describe the devil. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The devil is referred to here as the God of this age. As a matter of fact, there are some other descriptive ways, phrases that are used in talking about the devil. You look in John 16, he's referred to as the ruler of this world. In Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air. In 1 John 5, the world around us is under his power. Yeah, so, so there's something to all of this, that this world, this realm, it is his domain. And that's what these passages are saying. And that goes a long way to help you to interpret and understand passages like these. John or James chapter 4 where it says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Man, that's a pretty, that's a pretty strong statement. And in fact, uh, John in 1 John chapter 2, even kind of takes it a step further, and he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. Now, don't interpret that as being nature and beauty and a soaring eagle and a wonderful waterfall or a scenic view of snow-capped mountains. And That's not what he's talking about here. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So we're talking about the, the values, the value system and all that exists in the world, that that's not what we are to be chasing after. That's not what we are to, to be attempting to embrace. But this is why. We're warned about it because this is his domain. And this is why the world is the way it is. And we shouldn't be surprised by some of the things we see and hear that are going on in the world. So that's the bad news. The good news is greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 
I mean, there's a victory element in all of this, and that is the indwelling Holy Spirit. When you said yes to Jesus, when you gave your life to Christ, you know, based on passages like Acts 2.38, when, when you repent and are baptized into Christ, you receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is why the Bible refers to your body as being a temple of the Holy Spirit as a Christian, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Yeah, in fact, the, the, the scripture directly uses that statement in 1 John 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So though the world value system is what it is, and it is uh, his domain, the devil's domain, uh, yet we have one greater living within us. So we don't have to be conformed to the image of the world. But we, we can rise above that and we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind through the work of the Spirit in our life. But there is some more bad news. Bad news that uh, the devil is ticked off. He is filled with rage. Going back to the Revelation 12 passage, it says, Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Yeah, the Bible flat out says this about the devil, is that, that he is filled with fury, he has rage. There's more than one reason why the Bible says that we shouldn't let the sun go down on our anger. You know, you come to passages like this one in Ephesians, and, and obviously if you let the sun set on your anger and you just kind of let your anger exist, it's going to morph into um, resentment and bitterness and you know, you're going to become a person like that. And that's bad enough. But, but the fact of the matter is, if, if you allow that to happen, part, part of just as big of a problem, if not a bigger problem, is you are in effect becoming devil-like. You see, his rage consumes him. And when we start allowing uncontrolled anger to rule in our lives, slowly but surely, we start to resemble the devil. Yeah, we, you don't want to go there. He's filled with rage. But there's some good news. Even in view of that, he's running out of time. His days are numbered. We're not in the dark about the fact that eventually the outcome is going to become obvious to everyone because his days are winding down. I find it of great interest that when you look in the Bible in the New Testament, the book of doctrine that across the board Bible scholars point to is the book of Romans. Romans is the book that really breaks it down and gives you the theology and the doctrine and all behind our faith. But what I find interesting is when you study those 16 chapters of the book of Romans, there is only one direct reference to the devil. He might be implied in another verse, but there's only one direct reference to the devil in Romans. And this is what it says. 
the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Isn't that an interesting statement? In talking about our salvation and how, how we're justified by faith in Christ, and, and that's what Romans is unfolding, the beauty of the gospel message. Oh, and by the way, you know, right toward the tail end, Paul includes Satan's about ready to be smashed. He's going to be taken out completely. Yeah, he's running out of time. Well, but that shouldn't surprise us, right? Didn't God foretell that way back when? The first time we ever read anything about the devil was when he, the Garden of Eden thing happened. And at that same moment in time, we had the first prophecy of the Messiah. And look at what it says. God said this to the devil. said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. The very thing we're celebrating this next Sunday with the resurrection. You will strike his heel. Yeah, before the resurrection, the devil, I guess, felt maybe he had won by having Jesus crucified. But actually, he was playing directly into God's hands and didn't even realize it. God had foretold that, that the devil's time was going to run out. So that's the good news. Now, there is some more bad news. He promotes sin. In fact, this is the thing we probably think about more than anything else whenever we think about the devil. We think about him as the tempter. And there are obviously scriptures that refer to him as being the tempter. And that's, that's um, what he does. That's what he does the very first time he appears in the Bible. In Genesis 3, he's doing that nasty work in the Garden of Eden by tempting Eve and, and Adam. Why is he so invested in tempting? Why is that his, his thing that he focuses on more than anything else? It's because he knows what sin does to a relationship with God. And this verse, as well as any verse in the Bible, lays it out for us. It says, but your iniquities, which is just another uh, word that's talking about sin or transgressions. It says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So sin represents a wedge, a wedge that is driven down between us and our creator. And we see that actually played out with Adam and Eve and Garden of Eden and all of that, you know, happening. But the thing is that the devil can't force this. He can't force you to sin. He can entice you. He can deceive you. He can mislead you, and he's a master of doing all of those kinds of things. But he cannot force you to sin. But boy, he wants you to sin. That's the bad news. The good news is Jesus forgives sin. So when you have given in to that temptation, when you actually have crossed that line and you have sinned, we have one who came and did for us what he did by dying on the cross and 
and being raised back to life again on the third day and is able to cleanse us and to forgive us so that we're justified just as if we'd never sinned. You know, as white as snow, all of those descriptive phrases that are found in the Bible. We've uh, had a couple of recent messages about Jesus being the Messiah, or a couple Sundays ago, Kurt was talking about the sacrifice. If you missed either of those, you need to go online and hear those. Because if you're really going to understand the flow of the message of the Bible, you need to understand those concepts. Um, I can't say it any better than the way Paul did to the church in Colossa. He said this, God rescued us from the dark power of Satan and brought us into the kingdom of his dear son who forgives our sins and sets us free. That's the good news. This is what the cross was all about and the victory that was sealed um, sealed by the very thing that we're going to be celebrating next Sunday, on Easter Sunday. This is why Jesus came. And we reflect on that price that he paid to make it possible for us to be forgiven. We, we reflect on that every Sunday. You just did right before the message during your time of communion, a time where, where we look again and are reminded of the body and the blood of Jesus and what he did when he went to the cross on our behalf. So that's the good news. Jesus forgives sin. But I got one more piece of bad news I want to share. Even in view of the fact that um, the devil was cast out of heaven and, and uh, God is more powerful, and even in view of the fact that, uh, um, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, and that the devil's days are numbered, and even though he promotes sin, Jesus is able to forgive sin, yet this is happening. He is waging war against us. And we need to recognize this for what it is. The very last verse of Revelation 12. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. When it refers to the woman there in looking at the preceding 16 verses, I believe that that is a reference to Israel. And, you know, he tried to do what he could do against Israel and was not successful ultimately. And now he's, he's directed the crosshairs of what he is trying to create uh, havoc in on the followers of Christ. And that's what that verse is saying. And so that would include um, us, that we are in his crosshairs, waging war against us. Now, he doesn't use fighter jets and tanks and artillery in the conventional sense. He uses false teaching and division and deception. Remember, the Bible says he masquerades as an angel of light, you know, and, and so you have deception and persecution. Uh, in fact, uh, during... Peter's time, when Peter was writing his letters, uh, people were scattered because of persecution. And so people in the first century, they knew full well what persecution looked like. Well, that's, that's the kind of stuff that the devil uses, false teaching and, and division and, and all of that. Somewhere along the line, people frequently get the notion that when you become a Christian, the devil can't touch you anymore. The devil 
turns his attention elsewhere. He writes you off as a lost cause. And so he focuses entirely on someone else. That is a mistake. Because I do not believe that is a message of Scripture. That that is the attitude that we are to have. Think about what happened with Jesus right after his baptism. For 40 days, the devil tempted him. Things got pretty intense right after his baptism. And even at the end of that, Jesus successfully resisted the devil. But even at the very end of that, what does Luke include in his gospel? A little added insight in Luke 4. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. In other words, the devil wasn't done. He'd be back. He'd be back and he would be trying to tempt and, and throw Jesus off track, off course to whatever it was that he was planning to do. Look at the way that Paul uh, summed it up with uh, the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul says, I fear that as a servant deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a complete and pure devotion to Christ. That is a letter that was written to the church in Corinth. He wasn't writing this letter to a bunch of people that were not believers in Christ. He was writing to a bunch of people who were believers in Christ. And he was saying, I've got some serious concern here that the devil is going to be successful in diluting your devotion and steering you away from your reliance on the Lord. You see, if he can get you to compromise in an area or two of your life, then in effect what he will do is he will neutralize your testimony and thereby score a victory in reducing your influence on other people. Why do you think that uh, uh, many high-profile Christians, Christian leaders, we end up hearing them fall into immorality and the love of money and stuff like this. It's because of this very thing that we're talking about. You see, the devil doesn't raise a white flag. Oh, you've professed faith in Christ? Okay, white flag. I'll leave you alone. I'll go elsewhere. He doesn't do that. That's not what we see in Scripture. So that's the bad news. The good news, though, is we can resist him. And this is good news. In fact, I, I want to close this out with talking briefly about this good news. You see, the devil's days are numbered. He knows it. He is defeated. But he hasn't thrown in the towel. You know, he's still going to try to do whatever it is he can do. You know, it's like what Peter said. He's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And, and Peter was warning Christians about this. And so that's a warning to us. But what I want you to see is what the beginning of the very next verse says. Because that's not the total thought that Peter is expressing. He goes on to say, resist him standing firm in the faith. He would not say that if resistance was an impossibility. He's saying that because you and I, we can resist him. And so let me close out with this as being the final passage of Scripture today. 
And I've got underlined a central statement here in James 4. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Take that as a promise that's found in the word of God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Look at what it's sandwiched in between. The preceding statement, submit therefore to God. The following statement, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You see, the point that I want you to see in looking at that passage is that your proximity to the Lord is the key to being able to successfully resist the devil. Your proximity to the Lord is the key to being victorious in your resistance. Now, if you're going to live your life in such a way that I profess faith in Christ back in 2000 whatever year, and now I got my get-out-of-jail, get-out-of-hell card. I'm going to stick in my back pocket, and I'm just going to live my life how I want to live, but when the time comes and I need it, I'm going to take that card out, and, uh, you know, on Judgment Day or whatever, I'll flash that card. And if that's going to be your approach, then I don't see a whole lot of victory in, in the living of your life. I see the devil creating a real mess in your life because you will be, in so doing, making yourself all the more vulnerable to his attacks. But if in your proximity to the Lord you're pursuing that and you're being disciplined and consistent in that, then you're going to begin to experience what a victorious Christian life looks like because the devil is not going to be able to stand up against that because of your proximity to the Lord. And so that is the final word we'll conclude with. Yeah, there's some bad news when you're talking about the subject of the devil, but boy, there's some good news that far outweighs it. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for your word and the insight that your word gives us, and I pray that we would take it to heart and, Lord, that we would understand that uh, some of the things that we may just blow off and not give a second thought toward that, you know, happens or, or develops in our life, that uh, uh, maybe we'll have a, an added level of sensitivity of being able to understand that, indeed, there is this invisible realm that's going on simultaneous to the physical world that we're living in. Heighten our awareness, Lord, and also heighten our awareness to our need for a consistent, devoted relationship with you. I thank you, Father, for the fact that we do not need to live our life in dread and fear, but we have the victory which has been secured in Jesus. And might we cling to that our entire lives. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.